back once again, ladies and gentlemen. The Nitro Gen podcast is here with Das Atung Kid, Brian Radshaw, and Marvelous Mark Ashworth. Uh, how are you doing, Brian? I'm not too bad. You? Going good, going good. Enjoying all this Nitro goodness that we're currently uh, researching. For the lovely fans over there in the uh, United States of America, Chile, Germany, Australia, everywhere, once again, all tuning in and loving what we're doing right now, Brian. It's greatly appreciated. And I'm sure you're uh, you're loving every second of it, apart from the Dungeon of Doom. Pretty much. And you can add Lex Luger to that. And Lex Luger. Let's, let, let's hope that Lex Luger joins the Dungeon of Doom and then you've just got something to just absolutely despise on Nitro. Yeah, let's just condense all my anger into one part, please. I mean, that will be a lot easier to get out of the way. Well, we're going to jump straight into it today. No messing about. Nitro number seven goes down on October 16th, 1995 from Albany in Georgia. Now, Georgia is obviously... Um, the- is it not New York? No, New New York's off territory for WCW. It's WWF territory, that. Ah, uh, that's my bad research. Sorry, guys. <laughs> now that you've said New York, I can I can briefly say that when they were announcing WCW Nitro was going to be coming onto TNT, they did that in New York, and Eric Bischoff let slip that they tried to book somewhere in New York to have the first show, but because New York and because you know Madison Square Garden have got this exclusivity deal with Vince McMahon and the WWF at that time, it was an absolute no-go. New York could not host WCW Nitro, the very first one, which is why they ended up in Minneapolis to do the Mall of America show. Well, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's Eric Bischoff's stomping ground. It's a brilliant little arena. You know, it separates Nitro, separates WCW from what WWE were doing. You know, I, I thought that was done on purpose. Yeah, it was their plan B. Okay, so yeah, this comes from Albany in Georgia, and Georgia is WCW's back garden, essentially. What WCW were doing at this point is they were only booking arenas that they knew they had a stronghold in. They weren't going further afield, and they weren't going out of the depth. They were making sure that they were going to have packed arenas to make the product look as good as it could do, which is why you're going to see over you know the, the next coming weeks and the coming months, you're going to see them revisiting the same arenas two or three times until they hit you know, the big stride of late 96 and 97. Obviously, they're going to stick around in Georgia because that's the home of WCW. Well, it makes sense. If you want to build a brand, build it around your hotbeds. It's like when WWE started Raw, they stayed in New York for the first, I don't know, I think it might have been the first year or two. It was That in the, that was in the bingo hall, weren't it? Yeah, it was sort of like a bingo hall, yeah. Yeah, I really like that venue, actually. I've seen the photos. Yeah, when they did Raw 25 last year, they did a, a side shot, a terrible side shot, in that little arena, and, it's, and it actually holds up really, really well. Mm. I'm surprised it's still there. I think it's part of the same building that the Hammersmith Ballroom is in as well, I think. So we're going to start off here with an announcement that Sting is going to be Ric Flair's partner tonight versus Brian Pillman and Arn Anderson. Obviously, carrying on from last week, Fleur's still got his little feud on with Pillman and Arn. This has been escalating slowly but surely in last week's cage match. It came to a head. And now it's WCW Pro, which was on the previous Saturday to this Nitro that we're covering now. I've not even heard of WCW Pro before. I'd heard of it, but I'd never, I don't think I've ever watched it. I've never seen it on the network or anything like that. I don't think he's even on the network, actually, come to think of it. I had a look on, on the network earlier today and there's nothing of the sort. Hmm. I've just never even heard the name. It it was completely new to me, that. Hopefully they'll get it up at some point. I know that they've only just uploaded the uh, WCW Saturday Nights, haven't they? Yeah. There's some good, really, really good matches on there. Uh, that's worth having a look. It might be worth something we could revisit later down the line. It could be. 
it's uh, it's very much a B grade show though. If you think like Sunday night heat, Saturday night is is kind of the same. It's just your talent that doesn't really get used and won't be put into a storyline. So many of like, but you still get the odd gem. That's the thing oh, that oh, absolutely. you did get with Heat in the early days. Yeah, the announcement is that Sting will be Ric Flair's partner, and in the promo that they show from WCW Pro, Sting is just essentially telling Rick that he's going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Rick's brought down a couple of kids that have got like Sting's face paint on. And- to kind of coerce Sting into, oh, look, you know, little Stingers want you to be Fleur's tag team partner. So it kind of works out in, in Fleur's favour and Sting reluctantly accepts, but he does say, if you screw me, I'm going to leave you dead, 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 dead. It's very uncharacteristic of Sting, that, as well, but it feels like long-term development. As you said on the last episode, is that you can actually see his black roots coming out. I actually looked very hard at his hair and... I can see that. I know that over the next few months, he will completely get rid of the blonde streaks and just have prototypical cross stinger. Yeah, and going back to what you were just saying there, that this is out of character for Sting, this goes back to uh, maybe 93, maybe 94, I guess, when Sting was in the Horseman and they all turned on him and they beat him up and... Since then, Sting's never really been able to trust Ric Flair fully. So they're kind of playing into that as well. So Sting and Rick have got this rocky relationship. So for Flair to come back and say, I want you to be my tag team partner, this is a big deal. Obviously, Heenan references it as well, uh, saying that they the, the last time that they tagged together was something like 1990. We get into the matches, and DDP's coming out now with Kimberly, who's currently known as the Diamond Doll. Uh, Kimberly's obviously the wife of Diamond Dallas Page at this point. He is going to face uh, John, Johnny B. Bad for the TV title. I did stumble upon something a couple of days ago about Johnny B. Bad, actually, who, who turns out to be Mark Murrow uh, in the WWF. Vince McMahon wanted Johnny B. Bad the character. He didn't want anything else. He just wanted Johnny B. Bad the character. He obviously wanted Mark Murrow to come and portray the character when he moved to the WWF. But WCW owned the copyright for Johnny B. Bad, and Vince didn't know what to do thereafter. He wanted this character so bad, he just didn't know what to do with Mark Murrow thereafter. I've heard about this. Apparently, the thing that actually pushed the deal through was that he brought his then-wife, Raina Murrow, more commonly known as Sable. He actually brought her to the interview, and apparently, he and I think Kevin Dunn was there as well, were completely enamored with her. They saw money in her, and... They were just like, okay, you know what? We can't have the Johnny B. Bad character. We'll find something for you, but we want to sign your sign your wife as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I could kind of understand that, but also it's just Vince McMahon all over. Whilst we can be a little bit platonic about that sort of stuff, I'm pretty sure that Vince McMahon had a raging boner under that table. Yeah, yeah I, I can only imagine what that interview went uh, went like. You know, whoa, pal, your wife is. <sighs> Fucking gorgeous. While well, he's fucking slavering you know, outside of his mouth. Was that a good Vince McMahon impression? That wasn't bad, actually. That's staying in. Yes. This match is just essentially a dud. It doesn't even get off the off the ground. DDP goes straight for the heel tactics. Cheap shots. Johnny B. Bab with the TV belt uh, to start off. And the Diamond Doll has this look on her face as if to say that she she doesn't want Johnny B. Bab to, to get hurt. DDP plays up to the crowd, and I, I really like this this uh, heat that DDP is trying to get from the crowd at the moment and the cheap shot. 
He's wiped him out with the TV belt absolutely for the count. And DDP counts his own pin whilst he's just sort of laying on Johnny B. Bad, just so nonchalant. And then on the three count, he just lets off Johnny B. Bad's gun and all the bad books go into the crowd and everything. But it's already been DQ'd. I absolutely loved that. It was so DDP, even though he's playing a heel and my knowledge of DDP is that he's pretty much always been a face. So there has been moments where he's been a heel in WCW, I know that. But for the most part, he has been their top face. And this is just like something that DDP would probably do as a face against someone that has done him wrong. Just lying down with a confetti launcher in his hand and just blasting it at number three. It's just like, excellent. Absolutely excellent. I did enjoy it. I do sometimes have a problem with matches that never get off the ground like this prime example. You spend more time watching them make the entrance than you do watching them actually fight. On the odd occasion, I don't mind it. This fits quite nicely. I don't think we've seen it on Nitro as yet where a match has just ended as quickly as it's begun. Which is fine because it's given more time for the other matches. Uh, There is another pretty short match in this episode. But the other two matches, they get a little bit more time as a result. So I, I, I'm with you that I don't really like these non-matches. It's just their purpose is for a little bit of story development. Better served in the middle of the card rather than the opening of the card. You know, as long as the Cruiserweights get a little bit more time and, you know, Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman on that lot get a little bit more time, I'm fine with it. Bischoff has obviously mandated that they want the Cruiserweights to be given a little bit more TV time, but also the main eventers need to be given a little bit more time to promote the pay-per-view where the money is. So Bischoff's got the right idea here. He's setting up a little feud nicely with DDP and Johnny V. Bad, and obviously throwing the Kimberly element into there as well, but also putting much emphasis on the Cruiserweights and then putting emphasis on the moneymakers, your Hulk Hogan's and your Ric Flair's. So it is, it's a nice balance on Nitro at the moment. And as you said, it gives time to matches. One of them is the next one, which is uh, Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero, which is another match that makes these nostalgic trips down Nitro memory lane well worth the while. Cannot understand how much I love this match. I've probably seen like these kind of matches a thousand times over and over. But there is something that has to be said about what WCW were doing with their cruiserweights in that Chris Benoit can still fly, but he'll only fly when he really, really has to. He'll use a more map-based technical style to counterbalance Eddie Guerrero's high-flying style. And they really push Chris Benoit as like a different kind of breed of wrestler, I suppose. Yeah, Benoit's not an entertainer, is he? He's he's a thoroughbred wrestler for me. Yes. Uh, there's no gimmick. There's no, you know, the tights have got like a design to him and everything. But it's nothing flamboyant. That's the word I'm looking for. He's not flamboyant. He is just built and made to take people apart. That said, he has no gimmick. But with that ridiculous mullet and the blue tights. He's 70s Incredible Hulk. <laughs> He's the Lou Ferrigno's Incredible Hulk. If you if you take that uh, Chris Benoit here and just paint his face and his body green, he's 70s TV Incredible Hulk. With elements like that in your creative brain, Brian, you should have been working for WCW in 1995. Yeah, I think I've got a better creative brain than Kevin Sullivan. 
I think Chris Benoit painted in green would be a perfect fit for the Dungeon of Doom. I think it would have been a perfect fit for Halloween Havoc. Very true. You know, if I, if, if you're going to do the Halloween Havoc um, idea, just have everybody dress up. And him as the Incredible Hulk, perfect. This is going to be uh, Chris Benoit's debut. And it's obviously going up against uh, Eddie Guerrero, who we obviously all know and love. But interestingly, at the moment, Eddie Guerrero's only signed to a 90-day contract in WCW, and he's approximately 30 days into his 90-day contract. So he's only got two months left on his contract already. Is there any particular reason why he was given such a short contract? Is it because he was more unproven? I haven't seen the details as to why he was only given a three-month contract. Maybe... It was a negotiation period. They gave him a goodwill contract for three months so that they could negotiate some sort of long-term deal down the line. But like you said, maybe Bischoff and WCW wanted to have a look and see how the Cruiserweights fared when it came to Nitro. And obviously, they're getting over tenfold. Yeah. Uh, going into the match, there's an early feel-out for each other with some good athleticism. Uh, there's a nice head-scissors takeover by each man after a couple of pinning attempts by Eddie. Guerrero with a variation of the 619, which was really, really cool to see. Obviously, Rey Mysterio's perfected it to, you know, the nth degree now. Huge crossbody off the top rope uh, to the floor from Eddie. We're seeing this every week now when Eddie's fighting. He's done it against Malenko. Uh, he's done it here against Chris Benoit. And the elevation that he, he just doesn't give a flying fuck, does he? No pun intended. It's fucking ridiculous the height that he gets. It certainly is. And there's so much risk for injury as well. Yeah. Well, I guess you just trust your opponent there, really, don't you? They managed to get back into the ring, and then there's a, a back body drop out of the ring again, which is really, really smoothly done, I thought, by uh, Chris Benoit. It had to be smooth, because it very, very close to hurting both of them. It's like just one slight mistime there, and both probably would have landed on the next. And the biggest point in this match is that Eddie sends Chris Benoit into the ring post and then goes for a clothesline straight after it and hits the post with his shoulder. And Benoit seizes the opportunity and spends his time catching a breather after every move while Eddie is clutching the arm. Uh, there's a beautiful hammerlock suplex, which is which I found really, really nice. And, and all the way through, you're going to see Benoit just working the arm. Heenan's putting over that Benoit is a massive star in Europe and Asia in particular. A tilt world gives Eddie a way out uh, and he springs back from the ropes and hits a DDT on Benoit for a two count, which was really, really well done as well. Benoit's back on top though and Eddie's still selling the arm while Benoit concentrates on it. Eddie getting the odd comeback spot but Benoit is slow and methodical. As you were saying earlier, he's just all about being technical. He's all about your submissions and just getting down on the mat. Uh, no no high-flying involved whatsoever. Picking your opponent apart. Mm. And obviously concentrating on the arm is great storytelling. Many, many chops by both, and there was actually one point actually when they were ch when they were chopping each other that I thought Eddie started laughing of all things, but I I, I think he just had a, a painful smile on his face because those chops were brutal. There's a big scoop slam from Benoit and arm drags and wrist locks to continue to work the arm. Incredible spring up by Eddie, who goes onto the top rope and a head scissors and a near fall. It was just so good. Oh, absolutely slick. He's just so fucking good here. So good. When we talked about it on the first podcast, I said the the lack of weight for Eddie improved him somewhat, and I think this tells the story perfectly. Absolutely. If he'd have had more weight here, I don't think he would have been able to pull off half of the stuff that he does now. 
Um, and this is just so, so good. It's really enjoyable to watch. And if there's one thing that we could recommend from Nitro, it's just this match. It's as sweet as you like, and there's a great brain buster to follow it as well. An attempt at a frog splash from Eddie, but Benoit gets the knees up, and a disgusting-looking powerbomb on Eddie Guerrero. His head just bounces off the mat like a basketball. Yeah, so fucking gnarly. It looked like he just struggled to keep hold of him and just dropped him. You know, it, I don't think that's a fault of Benoit. It's it could have just been a slight miss time more than anything. He did actually work into it pretty quickly, so it it could just be a miss time. No fault of either competitor in my opinion, but Jesus Christ, that could have gone so wrong. Yeah, it does get a it does get a two count, and Benoit does get straight up, and he does then play to the referee and then play to the crowd, which gives Eddie a little bit of time to sort of straighten his eyes a little bit. A very fast two count, by the way. It's like the way the ref just pounds on Matt really quickly. It looked like he was trying to help Benoit win, and Eddie just kicks out. Yeah, like he was just a little bit too enthusiastic, though. He could have been thinking, "Ooh, he's going to be feeling that one. He might be knocked out, so I may as well just get this over and done with." And Eddie just being the pro was like, "Nope." Yeah, the fact that he kicked out of it is just insane in itself. But yeah, it really should have been the finish that for me. I don't know if you heard the commentators on this one, but Mongo said that'll change the colour of your hair. <laughs> Fuck hell. And then Brain replied with, that'll change the colour of your shorts. <laughs> uh, there's a bridging German suplex which gives Benoit the win. Was it a bridging German suplex, actually? I think I've written that that wrong. It, that's what I wrote down, but they called it a full Nelson suplex. But it's, it's yeah, it is much it the is same. a full Nelson suplex uh, uh, because a, a German would he would still have his arms wrapped around his waist. Yes, that's the difference. Yeah, arms around the waist, whereas that it's pretty much like you know arms uh, underneath your opponent's arms and lift up. Yeah, you are correct there, Brian, with a bridging full Nelson suplex. Yes, I did look this up, and I don't like Dave Meltzer, and I don't like the wrestling dirt shit. But it did get a four-star rating from Meltzer, for what that's worth. I agree with that. It's an excellent contest, uh, and Bischoff, after the match, hints at a cruiserweight division for wrestlers to compete in. And there was a good ten minutes given to this match as well, which is the longest I've seen on Nitro so far. Though I could be wrong, I'm pretty sure that ten minutes is the longest one that we've seen on Nitro. So, in terms of that match, Brian, what, what would you say? I absolutely loved it. It's just a great advertisement for what is to come. Eric Bischoff saying that the uh, International Committee, whatever that is, are considering a cruiserweight division. It's like the fans in these matches tend to do drift in and out a little bit. They they really pop for the high spots, but everything else they're kind of like not used to. The technical style, they're not very used to that. So they're probably not going to like be fired up for it. It's weird how in a few months' time when the cruiserweight division does turn around, how this division is going to be the backbone of WCW and the highlight of the Nitros, of the pay-per-views. It, it's so weird how quickly these fans are going to turn around. Yeah. One little bit of insight on WCW here is that Kevin Sullivan's actually booking the whole of Nitro at the moment with the odd input from Eric Bischoff in the way that he wants storylines to go. Eric Bischoff obviously having the final say, but Kevin Sullivan's the main driving force behind all of it. And as we go on, the further down the line, Bischoff becomes more and more involved in the creative process, obviously the the NWO and everything like that. 
But Kevin Sullivan's left, even though he's considered the head booker, is left to book the cruiserweights. But everything that you've heard or seen about WCW in the past at its cruiserweight division is mainly thanks to Kevin Sullivan, of all people. Which is a surprise. I suppose that Kevin does get a reputation that supersedes him a little bit, especially on eight three weeks. Eric Bischoff will be asked, oh, who booked this shit? And he'll, and he'll probably pass it off, uh, or I think it might have been Kevin Sullivan, or outright it was Kevin Sullivan. So it's probably unfair that he has that little bit of reputation. He's probably not responsible for half the shit that Eric Bischoff says that he is. I don't really know, but I, I am going to be a little bit hard on Sullivan, I admit. But, you know, fair fucks to him. If, if that is all him... Fair fucks to him because he's doing a really fucking good job. I agree. And what you were saying earlier about the clash of styles as well, Eddie's high-flying style, Chris Benoit's with the technical aspect, they look like two styles that really shouldn't go together. But when you watch this match, and we've watched it collectively over the past few days probably eight or nine times, (laughs) just because we've been noting everything down. Probably, yes. And you never get bored of it. No, it is so fucking good it's been the best match on Nitro so far and surprise no spoilers it's there is going to be a better match the following week in my honest opinion there is so stay tuned because that's going to be coming up shortly but we could spend all this podcast talking about that match we won't we're going to continue and we're going to go to Mean Gene Auckland who's in the ring plugging the WCW hotline which they also had in the WWF, I've just found out, actually, in the last couple of days. Basically... Yeah, it's censored. Yeah, basically giving inside information. Yeah. Which is not inside information on anything whatsoever. This is like a $1.49 a minute line, which is just a money maker for both promotions. But everything that you hear on it is just bullshit. It's typical of the time, really. You used to get... All these things in kids' mag- magazines and comics. You know, like, uh, you know, just ring this and, you know, you'll be able to talk to this person. You'll be able to talk to Dennis the Menace, even though he's a fucking cartoon character. You know, that kind of shit. It's just a, it's just there for the profit. There's a, a couple of uh, couple of stories that I've noted down here on, on my uh, on my tablet. So Gene was known for making up stories to plug these, yeah. you know, these <laughs> moneymakers, which included uh, a hint of Ric Flair dying. Of course he was responsible for that. That just sounds like Mean Gene. You know, anybody that knows about the backstage nonsense that Mean Gene would do, it was known for being a bit of a bullshit artist for the sake of being a bullshit artist. It was basically just pranking people. It's like, you know, oh, I heard this, I heard that. It's actually, in hindsight, quite smart that WCW capitalised on this, but instead of working the boys in the back, he's working the fans. Yeah. Apparently, I fucking love that actually. Apparently, Gene would get paid a significant amount of the revenue from this as well because he was the one that was making up the things but also plugging it. And then when you phoned it, it was Mike Tanay on the other end. A recorded phone call, but it was Mike Tanay on the other end. So, this one plugs that there's a fight in a parking lot between a wrestler and a fan in the WWF at their last show. I didn't know Chris Jericho was there in 1995. <laughs> Good shout. Yeah, I, I tried to do a little bit of research on this and it turns out it never happened. There is no such thing. Gene then brings out the Giant and the Taskmaster with Sullivan cutting a promo 
on him being evil and taking Hulk Hogan's identity by shaving his moustache. And his fucking coys, by the looks of things. But yeah. So the Taskmaster does he, he does claim that Hulk Hogan created him. Now this is a this is another thing that I wanted to bring up as well. The the Dungeon of Doom was essentially created as a stable for Hulk Hogan to mow through. And it's eerily reminiscent of all the weird and wonderful characters that Hulk Hogan over his career has defeated wherever he's been in wrestling. So Kevin Sullivan to appease Hulk Hogan and to give him this batch of people that he can just mow through on a frequent basis created the Dungeon of Doom just for Hulk Hogan. That in theory actually makes sense. But it's you know, it's the execution that is just so poor. I mean, here, um Kevin Sullivan talks about how he's evil. He's been telling people for months that how he's evil and that. And it's like, you're a heel. You're not supposed to say, look, I'm heel. Uh, you know, I'm a heel. You know, I'm evil. You're not, the heels aren't supposed to believe they're the bad guy. That is um, heel, bad guy, 101. It doesn't matter if it's in wrestling, if it's in a superhero movie, if it's in Sons of Anarchy or Game of Thrones. They're not supposed to believe that they're the bad guy. They're supposed to feel that they're justified in their actions. So that just takes me out of it. But throughout this promo, he sounds so fucking bored. I mean, is he Ross Kelly rehearsing a lecture? <laughs> you know, he just sounds so bored. I wouldn't be surprised if he was bored. Yeah. Sullivan takes credit for Hogan giving up his colours and, and, and reverting to the black and to the dark side, even though Hogan's still babbling on about the uh, the Hulkamaniacs and... and He's saying that the Hulkamaniacs will become the children of the dungeon as well, which was, even though this is really kiddie, I do quite like that concept. Yeah. Like I said, you know, the structure's fine. It's just the execution of it all. There is a sound structure to what they're doing. I mean, the storyline itself, you know, if you, if you just take the cast of characters and just replace them with a different cast of characters, characters that people can be invested in, characters that aren't overly cartoony, this would be a really, really good storyline. Yeah. It's the characters that really make it what it is not. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. If this was like the Four Horsemen rather than the Dungeon of Doom, that would be ideal. It would be more realistic and it would be more like a fight than it would be a cartoon show, like you said. Yeah. Uh, the Giant then says that he's going to destroy Hogan at Halloween Havoc, first in the monster truck and then in the ring to win the title from him. Covering uh, Mean Gene's face with his hand as well. Mean Gene's squirming is absolutely fucking hilarious. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. What a pro. He's just such a pro, is Gene. Do you, do you know the story of how the Giant got to be employed by WCW? Was he um, found by Hulk Hogan? He was. Do you know what his previous job was? Was he a bouncer? No. No, because that would have made sense. Uh, <laughs> you are what, never going to get this. <laughs> was he? Was he a chef at McDonald's? No. No. Uh, I haven't got a fucking clue. He was doing karaoke. He was doing karaoke. <laughs> and Hogan oh, for... had a conversation with him and said, "I think uh, I think I'd be interested in bringing you into wrestling." So he went and had the conversation, and obviously it doesn't take long to say, well, hmm, do I want a $250,000 contract to do wrestling? And, I'm, well, I'm paraphrasing the $250,000. might be on. It might be on less, it might be on more, I'm not sure. Either way, it's mega bucks compared to what he was doing, and 
and to learn how to wrestle as well. For a guy that's his size, he doesn't really need to learn all the tangibles right away. You know, he's not having to uh, be a big seller. He's not having to drop down to the floor. I mean, that wouldn't make sense anyway because of his size. You do not want to see him dropping down to the floor the moment he gets into the ring. You know, you want to see that presence. You know, all he has to do is just learn some moves that could get him through a match. And that is, you know, that that's very sound judgment. So right now, as you've said in the past, we haven't seen him actually fight in a match yet. And what I would no. presume is that at this moment in time, even though he's appearing on TV, that he is going through the training process. Yeah. So there you go. That's a that's a little bit more on uh, how the giant came to WCW, and we 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 do have Hulk Hogan to thank for that. There's not many things I'll thank Hulk Hogan for, but I do thank him for that. Yeah. Whilst we're on uh, the giant, have you been watching the Giant Show show on Netflix? I have not. No, I wouldn't do either. <laughs> Sorry, it's the Big Show show. It it's a parody of him. You could actually say that about most of his WWE career. To be fair, is that. You know that—that's what the uh, Big Show show is. It, it's just everything that he did in WWE. I'll give that a miss then. Yeah, don't bother it. It's terrible. If you just want a good laugh at up about how something is hilariously bad, then watch it. By all means, watch it. <laughs> okay. But if that—if if you're not into cringe comedy, don't watch it. <laughs> okay. Speaking of cringe comedy, out comes the Disco Inferno, and he's out and he's come to party. He's just going to start dancing around and he's, again, he's not on the format. He's not even due to wrestle. But he's coming out and he's just coming down for a boogie. Did you hear what Mongo said about him? Uh, I haven't noted it down. He said that uh, Disco makes him cough up his toenails. (laughs) So, you can just imagine Steve, Mongo, McMichael, you know, getting back to the hotel room after the show, having a shower, looking at his feet, going, oh, jeez. My toenails are getting a bit long. I'll just, uh, I'll just fucking eat them. What a fucking gross dude. Seriously. What kind of imagery is that? What were you thinking? Yeah, now that you've said it, I was hungry going into the recording of this podcast and now I'm not. <laughs> Sorry about that, pal. It's all right. I'm sure I'll forget about it. Meng versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan is the, the next matchup once Disco's actually gone and naffed off. And it starts straight away with strikes with right hands. Uh, there's a couple of big slams, but it's over pretty quickly. And Meng puts the spike to Duggan's throat, which gives Meng the win. It's pretty throwaway, really, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a squash match because uh, Hacksaw did have a couple of hot spots. And there wasn't really enough time for it to be considered a squash match, really. Yeah, as, as time's going on and as we're doing this as well, I, I'm, I, I don't mind watching Meng matches. Uh, I don't mind seeing how he is in the ring because obviously he was Haku in the WWF, but I didn't see much of that at all. I've talked past in the past about the gimmick Battle Royal at WrestleMania 17, which he appeared in. And the more and more I watch this, the more and more impressed I am by Meng. He's just got everything really n- nailed down. Yeah, in that match, he does um, a step-up uh, crossbody off the turnbuckle, and that was really impressive. It was, yeah. Really, really impressive for a guy of his size, because um, he, he is a quite a big guy, and you don't really expect that kind of agility out of him. That I, I actually jumped out of my seat when he did that. That was so good. It was impressive. I did enjoy Get it. Get him in the cruiserweight division. <laughs> yeah, may- hey, maybe. <laughs> you never know. He probably would have been more suited for the X Division. He's probably a bit too heavy set for the cruiserweights, sadly. (laughs) 
So we go into a break. Uh, they, they do promote the main event just as they're going into a break. But then there'll be a, a Hulk Hogan promo. Again, he's calling Jimmy Hart his best friend, which is kind of teasing now that, you know, Jimmy Hart might be up to something. We've gone all black and white in the background. We're all dressed in black, and Jimmy Hart's dressed in black. He's just clutching onto the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Prototypical NWO. Yes, it is. This is this is a very very early on kind of tease that Hulk Hogan might be going somewhere else with his character. Just yeah. again dipping the toes in the water of possibility. And you can see why uh, the NWO, especially Hollywood Hulk Hogan, works so much. He does look. Absolutely badass in all black. He really does. I attribute a large part of the NWO's early success, apart from the obvious, in the actual look. You know, the black and white. It's I, I know it's I know it's cliche that the heels wear black and all that. But when a character has been known for wearing bright, colourful uh, clothing, I say bright, colourful red and yellow for as long as time, and he suddenly just changes into all black, little bits of white lightning on the tights it is a great look it, it's a good palette cleanser but it is an absolute phenomenal look for Hogan it just works yeah it worked out well for Sting as well yes. the colours and everything like that just went and he just went to black it's weird it's very weird but WCW was kind of like that dark and dingy production yeah the, the more realistic production yeah so yeah I didn't mind this 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 promo again, it, it, it's getting too much screen time. It's giving too much time away on this big stinky giant and all that sort of stuff. It's just tedious. Yeah, it's just regurgitating the same shit that he's been saying week in week out now. Yeah, and I think because it's Hulk Hogan, he gets as much time as he wants. Whereas if it was anybody else, they'd be saying, right, you've got thirty seconds, get your point across. Otherwise, it's just not going on TV. Yeah. Once we get past this. We're going to get to Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman versus the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. And as announced at the beginning, Sting was going to be the partner of Ric Flair. However, Ric Flair is coming out here, a solitary man, and he's going to fight Arn and Brian Pillman by himself, which I'm completely not against whatsoever because Flair, at this moment in time, is just up for a fight all the time. And I'm loving every second of it. What I'm loving is finally getting to hear Arn Anderson's theme. We only get like a 15 second clip of it, but go out your way to listen to that theme. It's so good. Just real talk, right? This is natural gen exclusive. You won't get this info from your Cosmos or your Agony Ant columns. If you are having issues in the bedroom, <laughs> put on Arms theme. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I think about it, bro. Mark. <laughs> that sexy guitar will get everything going. There will be no more 60 minute time limit draws in bed. You both will win, <laughs> and guaranteed you ladies will be pregnant if that is your goal. Likely with quadruplets, mind, but there you go. Exclusive advice from your Uncle Brian here. Oh, Jesus Christ, Brian. Fucking hell. I've just I've, I've just oh god I'm about to drink now I'm crying 
So I, I, I have been playing that theme over the past couple of days because obviously I love it. And if, if people follow me on Twitter, you're going to see that I, I, I've talked about it a couple of times. I even got asked by a friend of mine yesterday, Corey, uh, what his favourite of all time WCW themes were. And his number one one was the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea, which was really, really, really reminiscent of Prince, obviously. And I had to put, it was Arn Anderson or the Four Horsemen theme as my favourite. It's as simple as that. It is a really good theme. So I played it last night and uh, my Mrs. Beth, she said, this sounds like a Steve Vai song. Oh, yeah. I, I, I totally hear that now, yeah. WCW do a lot of, of copying hits that are already out there and making their own spin on things. But the iron one is just the top of the mountain. So we're going to get back into the match now if I can compose myself. Uh <clears throat> Sting hasn't come out with Ric Flair, uh, so currently it's going to be a two versus one uh, with tag rules for Brian Pillman and Arn Anderson. There's big chops in the corner and shots from Pillman. Uh, there's a double team in the corner, but Flair gets out of it. Attempts are made outside the ring to double team again, which which results on Flair getting on top. And the crowd is loving it in a big way, but they're just chanting, we want Sting all the time. A big elbow puts Fleur down, but again, Fleur is on top and goes for an unorthodox figure four lead lock. So I noticed in this, he actually gets the wrong leg. So normally when Ric Flair does a figure four leg lock, he does it mirrored when you're looking at it. But this time, he actually goes for a proper figure four leg lock. He breaks it to take care of Pillman, who's just attempted to try and uh, get Fleur while he's on the floor. Or he gets a slight advantage after Pillman gets a boot to Fleur's head. But Sting actually finally comes down and the crowd goes absolutely berserk for this. Yeah, a really loud fucking pop. Hugely, hugely over. This is the probably the biggest reaction that I've seen on Nitro thus far. Yeah. And Sting just comes running down again like an ADHD child. <laughs> gets straight on the apron and just wants a tag straight in. Uh, Sting was waiting in the wings to see if Fleur could handle himself. Fleur manages to hold the ropes after being thrown in. Pillman goes for a drop kick but misses. So Fleur collapses to the floor and slowly makes his way over to the corner and then here comes Sting. And he cleans house, offers up a couple of Stinger splashes to both of the opponents. There's an attempt at a double team which fails for Arn and Pillman and then Pillman on the top rope is perched and cut off by Sting and thrown onto the ropes, uh, groin first. Very nice. Yeah, very gnarly looking. As Flair is getting into the ring, it is announced that Arn and Pillman have actually been counted out, which I, I completely missed here. Yeah, it was very confusing finish. Flair's managed to get onto the apron in time, and it looked like Flair and Sting were actually going to face off at some point here, but it doesn't actually transpire. The referee says, no, you guys have won uh, because they've been counted out. So they get back into the ring and they just celebrate and they're wooing uh, as they as they go for a break. And Nitro comes back with Mean Gene Auckland in the middle of the ring, giving Sting and giving Fleur a microphone. And Sting says that Fleur is back on the straight and narrow and that he has all the heart and all the guts and he knows that he can trust him again. Heenan plays the great heel commentator again by saying it's all nauseating. A quote from Heenan here, it says, A pat on the back is only 12 inches from a kick in the butt which I really, really like. That should be a mantra. <laughs> yeah, that, that is brilliant. So yeah, Sting and Fleur are best buddies right here. They've won this match via count out. Fleur actually helps Sting get out of the ring by opening the ropes for him and everything like that. 
it feeds into this little thing like he's being too nicey-nicey, so you've always got to be wary because you never know the dirtiest player in the game is up to. Yeah, that I put in my notes. I said, you know, because you know, he's saying that um, nobody uh, believed that Sting could trust Ric Flair, which is kind of like another added wrinkle to his character. Like, he is starting to be a little bit more untrustworthy of people, uh, probably justifiably so. You know, he's learning and he's, he's not taking any more shit and all that, yada, yada, yada. He will team with him at Halloween Havoc, and I just put my notes. So Rick is turning then, <laughs> and you know it. It will probably make little sense considering what Flair is going through right now. But I'm telling you now, if like if this means a four horseman with Brian Pillman in, you know I am all for it because that entrance, that on it uh, entrance, we didn't get to talk about it sadly because of me. Just Arn and Brian Pillman stood in the entrance way during the forehand signal. It's like it just fits. It fits Brian Pillman to a T. He he just looks apart, and he, he's just such a good heel as well. So he 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 acts apart as well, mm. you know. Yeah, Pillman's a, 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 just a perfect fit for the Horsemen in my eyes. Obviously, the Horsemen aren't around at this moment in time, but also going back to what you're saying there about you know Ric Flair potentially turning on Sting when it comes to Halloween Havoc. This is foreshadowing. Somewhere down the line, you're going to see something on Nitro. Um, yeah. we, we are talking like you know sometime in 1996 but we are nine months away from something happening this is starting a ball rolling for Sting's career but that that all depends on if Rick does turn on Sting at Halloween Havoc just keep this moment in mind so as we sign off Nitro they're promoting what's going to happen next week and what I can give you here is I can give you the rating for Nitro which was a 2.2 versus Raw's 2.6 and what I wanted to add on these ratings obviously they're not 100% reliable Nielsen ratings because there can be a lot of back and forth channel switching and it's all 15 minutes and even then the way that ratings are worked is that there's only like a thousand households in America that have got these special boxes that record exactly what you're watching which is very naughty if you know if you're going down the stairs as a 14 year old boy to try and watch some adult orientated material as we've all done (laughs) so these boxes because there's only a thousand of them in a country that is as big as america they essentially average it out and this is where the ratings come in so when you when you're told that there's a million people have just watched your tv show it's actually like a hundred people with a special box so they are very unreliable these ratings however i'm going to keep giving them because it seems to be the basis and the gold standard of how you know wrestling shows have been measured over the years yeah but the one thing i i did want to say about this is obviously before nitro came along you had like the wwf raw was getting around twos now that we've got nitro and raw both getting at least on average 2.5 we've essentially added a three. So if we said that a point, and I don't know the exact number at this moment in time, but let's say a point equals one million viewers, we have added three million viewers to, or three million households to watching wrestling, which is really impressive, really, for a brand spanking new show. I think it speaks to the people like from the, you know, the fans from the eighties, the early nineties. The people that were watching the NWA and the territories and things like that, it probably speaks out to them. Uh, they probably wouldn't have been fond of the WWE because of them buying all the territories out and basically putting NWA on its deathbed. They're probably the ones 
tuning into these Monday night shows. They probably would have been tuning into like Saturday night and things like that anyway. It was a kernel of interest because WCW were affiliated with the NWA in the early 90s. But yeah, I think it speaks to that crowd, that lost contingent of fans. They're looking at this and like, oh, we've got an alternative to WWF on TV. And I've got the channel. I, you know, I'm gonna watch. You know, I'm gonna watch it. Fucking hell! And it's probably that in my eyes. Maybe they're also out of interest seeing what might have been on on USA on Raw just to see what the competition would have been and to kind of compare and and, and things like that. Yeah, I think it probably goes towards TNT's promotion of WCW as well. Yeah, that as well, of course. Whatever was on a Monday night has obviously been replaced by WCW Monday Nitro as well. So they may have picked up a few people, but the idea that, again, the points and say a point equals a million, if there's only 2 million or 2.5 million people watching Raw when it was just Raw, and now we've got 5 million people watching wrestling as a whole, that's a win for wrestling as far as I'm concerned. A huge win, because we're not seeing that today, even with AEW, like it between uh, NXT and AEW on, on a Wednesday night, you're still only averaging around about... 1.5, maybe close to 2 million viewers watching mm. wrestling on Wednesday night, which in this day and age is still pretty good between, you know, between two, well, I say two minor companies. One, that's a still a company uh, getting, uh, building its brand and another brand which has been around since, what, 2012 and even hardcore WWE fans aren't aware of or don't really watch you know, it's it's all it, it's good in that aspect that they're getting those views. However, it's it's still pretty poor compared to what Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown are getting, because they're still getting like two point fives. Yeah, we live in the age of on demand and the WWE Network and DVRs and TiVo and the internet. So there's a lot of excuses now as to why people might not be watching wrestling, other than the product is garbage. Yeah. But <laughs> ratings aren't really uh, important these days, as much as what people will tell you. They're not. They're not really that important. Um, USA know what to get out. Uh, what to expect out of WWE. Uh, Fox know what to expect out of WWE. You know they know they're not gonna reach the the golden days of the late nineties where you were getting bloody six points and seven points and what have you. That that is so far out of reach now. The efforts that they're getting now, the ratings that they're getting now, they're respectable at best. And, you know, there is a reason why Fox have paid, what was it, $1 billion just to have SmackDown. They know what to expect, guys. You know, they're, they're not expecting five-point ratings. They're happy with what they're getting. As long as they, as long as they don't start dipping south really, really badly, you know, WWE set. I think in particular the ratings back in the day were a big deal for WCW because they were owned by Turner and Turner had to sell the advertising space. So they Absolutely, they yeah. needed to proclaim how many people were actually watching the programme simply because they wanted to advertise X, Y and Z. Uh, the WWE don't really need to worry about that, I don't think. I think it's Fox who probably do the advertising selling, Yeah, which is why they'll be offering you know one billion dollars to keep the wwe on fox so that they can advertise to the masses that the wwe brings in and that and wwe are promoting uh what is on fox all the sports and things like that not at the moment obviously but 
you know, they do uh, they do promote Fox Sports original programming. So the 2.6 for Raw versus the 2.2 for Nitro era. The Raw results were Hunter Hearst Helmsley defeating Doink the Clown. The Smoking Guns, who are the tag team champions, defeating PG-13 to retain the WWF Tag Team Championships. Dean Douglas defeating Joe Dorgan. And Bret Hart defeating Dr. Isaac Yankum in a steel cage match. Oh, that'll put butts in seats. <laughs> Good effort there, Brian. Good effort. So we won't spend too much time talking about the raw results there, but I, I would say that Nitro did have the best match out of the pair of them with uh, Eddie versus Chris Benoit. Undisputably so. Mm. Speaking of ratings, I have started jotting down my own personal ratings for the ECOs. Okay. I gave this Nitro three and a half stars out of five. Excellent. Yeah, uh, the two the two matches, the two really long matches were excellent. Uh, obviously, the cruiserweight match was even better than the main event. Uh, Storytelling wise, all bored really. You know, including the Dungeon of Doom, it is advancing. It's making the giant look a legitimate threat. As I mean, they should be doing anyway. Um, everything though, it's it's all fine. It was it was a good show in spite of the two very short, well, one very short match and the non-match. There's a quite a lack of Dungeon of Doom on this, I think. There's there's less than has been on Nitros, and there's a little bit less of Hulk Hogan as well, and I think that's improved the Nitro. Yeah, and that and the makeup for that in the following week. So following week, Nitro number eight is uh, October twenty third, nineteen ninety five, from Hardsville, Alabama. Conrad Thompson hometown. It certainly is, but that's not what sticks out in my brain when it's Huntsville, Alabama. And I think I'm alright telling you this actually because I don't think it appears on a Nitro. Somewhere down the line, maybe 2000, I think it's late 2000, Jeff Jarrett cuts a promo on Dusty and Dustin Rhodes. And he dresses up as Dusty Rhodes. He gets like. Oh, I've heard of He this. gets in a fat suit and he comes down with a bucket of fried chicken and he's just hilarious. And I'm not a fan of Jeff Jarrett. As a wrestler, yeah, he's fine. But I think the fact that Vinnie Rue had come over from the WWF and Jeff Jarrett was essentially handpicked to be his number one son. This promo, I think this promo is well after Vince Russo's left, but it is gold. And I think it happens on Thunder, so if anybody wants to go and check it out, it's in Huntsville, Alabama. I know that much because he starts off his promo saying, Huntsville, live and in colour, the American dream is back on twack. I just remember it like it's just so good. <laughs> good dream impression. But yeah, um yeah, I've heard about this. I think I've actually seen a clip of it. I think you might have linked me to a clip of this a few months ago. It is good and yeah, okay, I know a lot of people are gonna say the obvious that it is tasteless, you know, fat you know, wearing a fat suit, eating chicken, yada yada. I get it, it is it is pretty tasteless, but at the same time I also look at it as that Dusty Rhodes would have been in on it. Yeah, he was in WCW at that point, it, so it, yeah. Yeah, he would have been in on it, you know, he would have just said, go out and do this. So as far as I'm concerned, if it were just something that Jeff Jarrett did on his own, if Ed Ferreira, because that's who I'm assuming was behind it, because um, he was also behind Oklahoma. He was Oklahoma, yeah. weren't he? That's fucking terrible, because JR had no say in that. But if, if a person has a say in it, I'm all for it. You know, it's not... DX dressing up as a nation of domination without getting the nation's fucking permission beforehand, you know, backstage, all that. They just went out and fucking did it and pissed off a lot of people. It's nothing like that. This is something that 
the the person that they are portraying as giving them the green light to go out and do that and i'm completely fine with that you know if you, if you get upset with it you know i i totally understand you know but you know for me that's the that's the only reason why i give it a pass it is a really good segment it's worth watching the jobbers that come down as well they're very green power plant people that are currently training to be wcw stars and there's one or two that might be recognizable but i won't give that away i'll let the people guess and if you'd like to send your answers in on a postcard you can't because we don't have a mail address but what you can do is you can hit us up on twitter on facebook on reddit and on instagram just look up nitrogencast and you'll find us on all your favorite social media channels so natural number eight october 23rd in huntsville we're opening straight up with the macho man randy savage coming down kurosawa and colonel robert parker already in the ring i'm happy that they just jumped straight into it i like that you know there's no fucking about no not going to the commentators you know building the show up things like that it's just straight into the action you've got the macho man in the opening match don't waste any moment Get him in the ring. Yeah. He's dressed yeah. in what I called highlighter pen camo tonight. And again, <laughs> it's such a look and it's only a look that Randy Savage could get away with. Uh, and it's excellent. Absolutely brilliant. He just looks a million bucks. Yep, it's flamboyant and it's just exactly what you want from the Macho Man Randy Savage. It's just Randy Savage. That's the only way we can describe it. And I know this is becoming a trend, me actually discussing what the Macho Man is wearing, but I cannot help it. I just am so in love with this look. Uh, I, know he, I know he started doing this in WWF, but it's a big departure from what he was wearing because back then it was just flamboyant trunks with stars on and, and boots and knee pads. It's very basic in its own way. Not so basic because he was wearing clothes that nobody else was wearing back then. In dressing up like this, it was very, very minimal in WWE. It was very short until he retired. So here it's kind of like he's getting to go at it full hilt. He genuinely looks like he's enjoying himself. I, I just love it. I love it. I mean, I, I don't spend much time talking about what the macho man's wearing, but it, it's always the first thing that you see and it's always your first impression. And your first impression is always good. And that's what you want. You want to give a good first impression. You know, you look at the guy that was formerly Albert. All right, we're fucking terrible. Kanji written all over his face and really short, way too tight red trunks that left nothing to the imagination. That wasn't a first good look. Macho Man, there's nothing more I can say about it. If, you, if you're looking at wrestling for the first time and you see this guy dressed in weird, flamboyant clothing like Macho Man that you can't really explain to anybody... You're going to look at that and you're going to be intrigued. It's like, why is he wearing that? What? And just when you see him in the ring, you just get it. You just get it. It's it's just who he is. Yeah. Kurosawa straight after the macho, uh, after macho slapped Colonel Robert Parker in the face. Uh, there's many strikes, particularly to the legs, and a couple of minutes of offense, macho manages to get hold of the trunks and sends him out of the ring. But Kurosawa is straight back in and on the offensive. Savage is selling the arm, which has been mentioned in the commentary earlier. And he's getting zero offence throughout a break uh, as we come back. And Macho is still being pummeled. Uh, there's a brief feed of a comeback after some chops, but Kurosawa has the answer all the time. He attempts to dive to the outside under the ropes, but misses. And then a kick to the ring post after Macho moves gives Macho a chance to get some offence in the ring. 
Suni's up top and drops the elbow. So there's not much offense from the Macho Man here. He just does a hell of a lot of selling. He's he's just able to pull it out of the bag when he needs to. Big elbow from the top. He gets the three count out of nowhere. And Parker is just going berserker. It's very interesting to see Savage in this mode because Heenan talks about on commentary how he's usually always on the offense and all that. To a degree, he always was in WWE. He always was pretty much the first on the offense. But he always sell, sold a lot as well. In this current mode that he's in, it's kind of like, if you're going to put me in the ring with someone that is perceived to be beneath me, doesn't match me or like that, I'm, I'm just going to give him everything that I can and just fuck your assumptions of this guy. I'm going to do my best to get this guy over. And that is so selfless of him. And it's absolutely brilliant because Kurosawa, it's not a great match, but Kurosawa does come out of this match looking like a legit threat. You know, he's just gone, what is it, like, you know, I think it's like six, seven minutes with the Macho Man. The only real offence that the Macho Man got in was his elbow drop, which is protected as a finisher as well, which I do like. You know, you're not getting out of that, you're not kicking out of that. That's that's the only thing that goes against Kurosawa. It's almost a perfect match for him. That's another reason why I love Randy Savage. He's just so giving to his opponents, so selfless. A lot of people today could learn from that, because there's not... Trust me, there's not many that are as giving as he is. They're probably like, I've got to get my spots in, brother, you know, and which is great. You do get some really good entertaining back and forth matches, but they're also getting a bit samey. You're not getting these kind of matches where the white meat babyface looks a legit threat. In any any instance, you could believe that he could just go out, hit his finisher and win, but they're not doing it. They're giving everything to their opponent. They're selling for their opponent. They're making their opponent look like they are a monster. Yeah, he does it so well. With the announcement last week that there's going to be a cruiserweight division, for Kurosawa to actually, as you said, get kind of one over on the macho man, even though he lost the match, he certainly proved himself. This is great for Kurosawa going forward because obviously you would think that he'd be involved in the cruiserweight division. Uh, division as it goes forward. That's interesting because I look at him and I don't see him as a cruiserweight. He does look a bit on the heavier side, but now that you mention it, I, I'm looking at him and I'm like, I've, I've got a perception of him. Is maybe because his presence makes him look a little bit bigger than what he actually is. I mean that happens. So he's probably yeah he's probably a, a good fit for the cruiserweights. I, I reckon that he, he is in that threshold. I think in WCW the weight limit was two hundred and fifteen pounds, wasn't it? I'm not sure. I know I know he went two or five. I know it was a little bit more than that. I think it was either two hundred and fifteen, two twenty, something like that. So yeah, f- feasibly he could be a, a fixture in the cruiserweight division. I don't know if he is or not, but it'd be interesting to see going forward. So to the commentary booth, we go and see Eric Bischoff telling us that there's no restraining orders this week. Woohoo! Heenan plants the seeds that uh, Sting can't trust Lex, and the lights go out, and what seems to be the Dungeon of Doom's higher power and father of Kevin Sullivan instructs that Hogan, who is a rare white Bengal tiger whose whiskers have been clipped must be stopped, and an iceberg containing a person only mentioned as the Giant's insurance policy, as Gene interviews the Taskmaster and the Giant. Uh, I've not written much about this because, again, it just got really cartoony and I zoned out. Yeah, that iceberg. It's a sheet. It's like a thin plastic sheet, by the looks of things, lit up in the middle. This is the kind of thing that really, really gets to me. This is what really fucking pisses me off because I know what they're trying to do. 
but there's just absolutely no fucking way to make this look real. You don't, you can't make a, a proper iceberg, so why fucking do it? If you look to WWE with The Undertaker, The Undertaker has always been a cartoony character. There's absolutely no way that a guy can actually summon, uh, summon lightning out of nowhere. But he's The Undertaker, he's actually supposed to be a dead man, and that's why it works for him. And when they do it, they make it look like it's real. These bolts of lightning just come out of nowhere and hit the stage or hit in front of their opponent or what have you, you know, and it actually looks real. There's absolutely no way in 1995, you might get away with this now, but there's no way in 1995 you can make this look real. So why fucking do it? It makes no sense. It's not even cartoony now, it's a parody of itself. It's just so bad. And we see it later on. We do see the, the Yeti, as Tony Schiavone likes to call him. Um, we do see him later on, spoilers and all that, but fuck it, it's a Dungeon of Doom. Who gives a fuck about spoilers at this point? We do see him break out of that, and it just looks absolutely terrible. Why do it? It just does not look like it works. No, it did, it did look cheesy. I mean, I, I, got, I would disagree about the inability to do it in 1995. I think if they'd have had the right materials, such as like, perspex maybe or something like that but like you said yeah bed sheets maybe, just aren't <laughs> they're not the way forward for this are they not not so maybe you could do it but you're not doing it you're just not even trying to make it look mm. real at this point and so it's why do it if you can't figure out a way to do it i suppose that's what my line of thinking if you can't wait find a way to make it look real why fucking do it it just makes no sense it takes me out of it it makes the dungeon of doing completely unbelievable not that they were believable in the first place the only two people out of that whole fucking group that are believable are the giants and meng and meng is believable because he's a fucking human being that's actually is well known to be a tough son of a bitch you know everything else the shark a guy fucking dressed in face paint you know with a headband uh, Zodiac, who's just a fucking a mutant zebra, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, it's Kevin Sullivan, who's now dressing up like fucking Hulk Hogan a little bit, you know, wearing sharp um, shit on his face, you know. Whoever else in that fucking shit show, it, it it's just oh, oh my, I'm just so fucking sick of the Dungeon of Doom. Kevin Sullivan, the reason why he's wearing ye- yellow and red is because he's uh, a massive Hulk Hogan fan. Like kayfabe, yeah. So that's that's the reason why. So this goes back to last week. Then why is he trying to destroy him? You're a big Hulk Hogan fan. Why are you trying to destroy him? Then are you just trying to make him your own? I mean, find find uh, draw a line. What you want to do with the guy? Because you know it's all right going out for uh, out for him to try and destroy Hulkamania. But if you're a big fan of him and kayfabe, why you want to destroy Hulkamania? That makes no sense to me. I guess he was he was a big fan. Uh, I'm not sure of the backstory to be honest, but they always say ne- never yeah. meet your heroes. Oh fucking hell, yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe Hulk Hogan actually vexed him in the back, and he's like, right, I'm gonna fucking destroy you. I'm not gonna do it in kayfabe. I'm gonna actually try and do it proper. That will be an interesting story. This is not an interesting story. The structure of it is fine, but overall, the the execution of it, it's just. It's not good at all. I said this morning that I am going to go on a fucking rant. And boy, have I gone on a fucking rant. I'm hot. The kettle's fucking boiled at this point. I'm just so sick and tired of the Dungeon of Doom. I just want this shit off my TV. It's making it so hard to enjoy. And every time they get significant screen time, it plagues the show. Like you say, last week, it was completely fine because there's very little Dungeon of Doom. That was fine. It the, The show runs so much more smoothly without them. 
when they're on there, it just feels like the show is doubling length. I actually punished myself by watching this episode four fucking times just because of one match. And I watched it all, all through. What the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> you should get hot more often, man. Oh, Jesus Christ, dude. I have been biting my tongue all fucking day. I'll fly through this bit then. We're back from a break and Gene introduces Hogan. Uh, he mentions Thunder in Paradise, which was a TNT production offered to Hogan as a sweetener for him coming into WCW. Hogan straight away mentions the Yeti. The Yeti has not been mentioned yet, so Hogan's fucked this up already. <laughs> oh um, my god. Yeah. I didn't even hear that. I mean, it's Hulk Hogan, I tune out. Yeah, no, he's fucked it up. He's fucked it up, he's giving it away. You fucking idiot, Hulk. He's still talking about the Hulkamaniacs, though. He started calling them Hulkamania droids or something like that in the last episode of Nitro. And he's saying that Sting is now growing a Fu Manchu. Again, we've not seen Sting yet, so what the fuck is he going on about? There's a lot of confusion in this promo. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, he seems to go after fucking Sting and Luger and Savage. It's like, what the fuck have they done to you? Okay, Luger is probably the most untrustworthy person out of that, and Savage is a little bit paranoid. But they haven't done anything to you. You're suddenly going after them. It's like... I don't understand. There's there's some missing communication here. I guess he's dark-sided. He's coming out. He's all in black. He's dark-sided Hulk Hogan. We're seeing a character shift of some sort. And that's great. That's fine. Not on its own. But you're not explaining what the fuck Savage and Luger and Sting have done to you for you to go after them. Again, it's one of them that I just kind of zone out on. If Hogan comes onto the screen, you've got like 30 seconds to win me over. If you're going on for five minutes in a promo, I'm just not interested. And spoiling shit. Mm. Well, let me tell you something, Gene. I'm going to spoil this whole fucking show for you, brother. <laughs> it's like, you may as well just fucking go out. And that was also very croaky, but I've been ranting about it. It's like, my voice is fucked now. Yeah. This is uh, Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit versus uh, Eddie Guerrero and Mr. JL, who we discussed on the last episode as being Jerry Lynn, with Alex Wright. I was heartbroken seeing him in crutches. I'm like, no, that's my boy. You know, he's injured. I, I was just, you know, I... I want to see more of him. You know, it, it's good that he's there assisting Eddie Guerrero and Mr. JL. You know, that's fine. And he does have his role in this match, which is, you know, it, it's something. But I want to see him in the ring. And this is no disrespect to Mr. JL. Mr. JL is fucking awesome in this. But if you're going to give me a choice of Eddie Guerrero and Mr. JL teaming up or Eddie Guerrero and Alex Wright... It's Alex right every single day. Yep, I'm 110% with you, to be honest. Um, but there's enough talent here to, to make a real good go of it. There's a quick shot from Eddie on Benoit, and the submissions are early on the map. A wrist lock to a headlock, and tags Malenko and both double team. But as Eddie ducks one, Malenko with a slingshot crossbody connects nicely. Malenko holds Eddie so Benoit can suicide dive, but Eddie moves, uh, which allows Eddie to chuck Mr. JL out onto both, which was pretty good. I love that. That that it's reminiscent of, uh, and and I know this is selfish because we're at a really shitty time in WWE. But when Rob Van Dam and Rey Mysterio uh, teamed up, and Mysterio was basically his his weapon. You know, he'd throw him everywhere, and that kind of shit. He had it with Kane and uh, Spike Dudley as well. Uh, another really weird tag team. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing. I do like the bigger, the bigger guy. Even though Eddie's not really that much bigger than JL, I don't even think he's bigger than JL here. But the fact that he's assisting him in that sense, like I do like that. I I love I'd love to see more of that in my tag team wrestling. Yeah. 
use your partners as weapons. It's just brilliant. I think it's, it's a safe thing to do as well, isn't it? Exactly. You know, you're not really going to end up hurting anybody. Uh, both Eddie and Mr. JL are in the ring, allowing the opponents to come back up and continue the fight in the ring. Malenko stands his ground, but Eddie finds himself in a fireman's carry and spins his way out of it into an arm drag and then a tilt-to-wheel backbreaker, which is uh, unbelievably athletic. Just just so good, so crisp. Oh. Mr. JL tags in and Malenko takes advantage and tags Benoit in while we cut away with uh, Shark and Scott Norton fighting backstage, of all things. Yeah, again, fucking cutting away in the cruiserweight match. Come on. Mm. Mr. JL manages a beautiful head scissors to get on top of the... Be- just, just to, just to add, if, if the cut, if this is happening during the cutaway, there's only one thing that I'm watching. So I've continued with the cruiserweight match. Whatever is happening with Scott Norton and Shark is just irrelevant to me. And Scott Norton, we haven't seen for a while, and now he seems to be taking on the heels. Like we, we had him face man, uh, Randy Savage in the second episode. He hasn't been seen since. Looked like he was starting an angle with Mongo. Thank fuck if that's not going ahead, mind, but. You know, we ain't seen him, and I really enjoyed him in that match, if I recall. You know, I was actually wondering before I watched this, it's like, where has he been? Yeah. You know, and at least this explains it. He's now pretty much fighting the heels, you know. Um, I think in that in that match, uh, Shark actually cost him the match, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did, yeah. Right. Well, th- okay, it makes sense. Yeah, Shark, Shark was led on his, uh, on his feet. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he uh, collapsed with just a little touch. Class, it mm. collapsed like a sack of bricks. Yeah. JL manages a beautiful head scissors to get on top of Benoit. And after a bit of an attempt at offence, Malenko's tagged in. Quick offensive moves from Malenko and Benoit and a submission as we go for a break. Uh, we come back to JL receiving further beatdown. And Benoit is in. And again, both are using the five count to their advantage. Uh, so double teaming. Big belly to back into a pin. And Eddie breaks the... Uh, Three count, so it's only a two count. But Benoit punches Eddie out of the ring. Jail almost gets a comeback, but he's cut off by Malenko and he's back in. Jail gets another glimmer, but he's cut off again. Benoit suplexes him and throws him onto the top rope brutally. Jail manages to get to the top rope, but cut off. And a top rope suplex with Benoit hitting hard on the mat. Benoit tags out after a pin attempt, but Jail gets a backslide on Malenko. Eddie with a huge drop kick to both Malenko and Benoit, who goes flying to the outside. Eddie walks the ropes with Malenko in a wrist lock as Benoit comes back into the ring and arm drags Malenko while simultaneously head scissoring Benoit at the same time. And that was just fucking beautiful. Yeah, absolutely seamless, spectacular. I don't think I've seen anything like that before. I've seen things similar to it, but nothing on that scale. It just, oh, it's so good, so good. Really, really good. Heenan actually says something here that I can totally relate to right now. How the hell can you even call this action? Yeah, um, you just simply can't. <laughs> We're struggling. JL is back in and takes Benoit out. Uh, Malenko and JL end up in the ring while Eddie and Benoit are outside it. And as Malenko goes into the ropes, Alex Wright trips him. So Alex Wright uses the crutch uh, just to trip up Malenko and JL manages to get the three count here. Uh, Pillman comes out and, and the post-match celebrations and takes Eddie down with a DDT out of nowhere, which was really, really slick. All in all... That's just a fucking excellent match that I've absolutely butchered with my uh, lack of English. All I can say is that is a really, really good match. I'm going to presume, as you said in the natural number seven element to this show, that this is the match that su- supersedes the um, the Malenko match uh, from before. Yeah, absolutely. It is this one. 
fucking incredible stuff. If, if I'm watching wrestling, the one thing I do look forward to is tag matches. Uh, because they're so different from everything else on the card, um, they're very hard to structure, but when you structure them well, they're really fucking good. And this was a really good tag match. Didn't need any gimmicks, you didn't need ladders, you didn't need tables, you didn't need chairs. You just let these four people just in the ring and go at it. You can tell like they're calling a lot of the shit on the fly as well. You know that this isn't scripted either, and it's absolutely sensational stuff. Best match of Nitro so far. Pillman comes out. Obviously, I want to talk about that a little bit. He seems to be breaking away from the fact that he's actually annoying Ric Flair now, so we might be going into a, an element where Pillman's getting some of the cruiserweights, and Eddie in particular. Or is he just doing as he pleases and just being the loose cannon? He's... He, like I said before, he's showing shades of the loose cannon character, and it's, it, you know, whatever his reasons for going after Eddie Guerrero, I want that match. I want that match because, again, mm-hmm. it would be a clash of styles that I think would work really, really well. And Brian Pillman is playing such a good heel. We, we, we spoke how he was struggling a couple of weeks ago, but with Orange's guidance and probably Rick Flair's guidance, I think I said this on the last podcast, that this is probably what's helping him. Uh, structure his heel persona together it's seemingly overnight he's just got it and it's not like he's doing a lot he's doing very minimal stuff he's got the nuances down that's a hard thing for a heel is to get the nuances down it's not about your actions it's not just about your actions it's your facials it's what you're doing with your body it's your body language and just everything it, it just screams heel you know he's got it down to absolute perfection He's one of the things I'm enjoying most right now. Yeah, the the less is more element is really good as well. So that we're we're not seeing much of yes. Brian Pillman, but when we do see him, he's he's on top and he's just getting so much heat. It's really really good. Uh, when he hands it up, he does it really well as well. It's like he can go through a very methodical heel character, and it works so well. It's just perfect. The nuances, absolutely everything, perfect. I can't really say anything more on that. But in WWF, he hands it up a little bit more, like. Uh, the cl- the classic moment where he's sat in front of the camera and he looks like he's praying and he just laughs up, teeth and eyes wide, just going <laughs> to the camera to end the show. He he's just so fucking good, so good. He it's such a shame that we you know we don't get to see him in his proper prime. I mean, I I, I saying that not really knowing what what happens from here with him. Uh, I know he's not going to be in WCW for a great deal of time, and I know he ends up with a horrific injury, which ends up with him fusing his his ankle and his leg together. Uh, so that's going to limit his flying style. But you know, I'm just oh, I love him. Brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. We're back from a break, and it's Harlem Heat with Sherry uh, on their way to the ring while they talk about the iceberg. Whoop do you do? And mention the hotline and some news about the WWF in your house the night before. Hogan's reference earlier on as uh, Sting and Lex Luger come out now seems to make sense because he's wearing yellow and red and growing a goatee. So Hogan's promos kind of giving away what was happening as we discussed earlier. See, that kind of thing would you would like the commentator to point out saying, look at this guy, you know, look at Sting. He's dressed in red and yellow. He's, he's growing a three-man tube, that kind of thing. Or the, let the yeah. fans figure it out. You know, just don't just drop it in the middle of the show just saying, oh yeah, coming up later on. Sting is going to be dressing like Hulk Hogan with a Fu Manchu growing. Like, no, don't do that. You know, just let us figure it out. Let us let us see it for ourselves. Again, it's the less is more element. Yeah, definitely. That's I'm I'm always a big fan of that. The less is more. 
So we, we start off this match with everybody in each other's faces. There's a lot of shoving and pulling and pushing going on. A bit confusing. I think Bobby Heenan points this out as well. Is that uh, Sting, you know, dressing in the red and yellow, it doesn't fare much difference from what Hall and Heat are wearing. They're also in red and yellow with a little splash of black. I found that very distracting. I don't like that. For me, I think a little bit of the discussion in the back just to say, look, this is what I'm wearing tonight. This is why I'm wearing it. It's to develop a storyline. Can you not wear the same colours, please? I'm not saying this is Sting's fault. I'm not saying it's Harlem Heat's fault. It's just a little bit of communication I think goes a long way. The heels and the faces, the opposite characters, shouldn't be wearing the same colours. It just takes takes me out of it personally. I, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. No, you're not. No, you're not. It, I mean, it, it didn't become... It wasn't exactly confusing to me, but it was just uh, more annoying than anything. Um, yeah, it's as you, distracting. As you say there, like, have a conversation in the back sort of thing. I would presume that, you know, you, you always bring a, a spare pair of tights. So yeah. there's no excuse for any of these professional wrestlers to not have brought a second pair of whatever they need. And Sting is a priority here as well. Yeah, and I'm not saying that because of his standing. That's not what I mean. It's the fact that he's got a story going where he... Apparently a story going, should I say, where he's dressing like Hulk Hogan in tribute for whatever fucking reason. You know, just allow him to have that. And maybe maybe Sting could have just done something a little bit different. Maybe Sting could have had yellow with red, not red with yellow. So we start off with Sting and Booker T. Uh, and Booker T strikes big and early on. Fast stuff, and Sting gets the advantage and a drop kick and a hip toss to, to the outside of the ring. There's a big back body drop and a tag for Lex to come in. There's an axe handle and Booker on the top as we go to the break. Lex is now on the receiving end, but coming back slowly but surely uh, as we come back from the break. He's cut off by Stevie, and Stevie soon tags in Booker T again. There's right hand Saluga, and Sting comes in to irate Booker, who tags out. Uh, Stevie comes in and continues the offense. Antagonising Sting to distract the ref while Booker assaults Lex in the corner, uh, getting over the heel element to the team. It's the same again this time for Stevie uh, after a tag, again using the advantage. Sherry has a photo of her and Colonel Robert Parker and is kissing them uh, at the side of the ring. She pulls them out of her skirt as well. <laughs> yeah, one's down like her butt crack. That... <laughs> yeah, is that where she was warming the Polaroids after taking them? Oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, discourse. So she's kissing these as, as the action goes on in the ring. Alex is still receiving a beatdown, which is always good to see. Sting getting the crowd up in support by smashing the hell out of the top turnbuckle. Luger is out with a front chin lock into a chokehold, but uh, he answers the count before three. And there's an attempt at a comeback, but he can't get it. Booker's tagged in. A sent-on attempt, but Luger moves. Sting's tagged in, and he beats up on Harlem Heat, getting over like hell with the crowd. Booker into the corner, and there's, there's a clothesline. There's a stinger splash on him, and then on Stevie. Big elbow on Booker, and Scorpion deathlock attempt, but Stevie makes the save. Uh, Sting's thrown out, which allows the double team on Lex. With Sting perched on top, gets onto a clothesline, uh, onto Booker T, and that's it. There's a three count, and the dungeon is straight out, like not messing about, straight after Lex, because Sting is choke slammed. Macho in confronts the giant and keeps his attention, allowing Hogan to come out from behind Giant. Tells Macho to leave and they face off Hogan and Giant. The right hands do nothing to the Giant. There's one big clubbing blow to the back of Hogan and Hogan goes down. Uh, but Macho helps Hogan to hulk up. 
The Dungeon of Doom comes in to get Hogan and Macho helps Hogan. Giant is reeling as Doug Dillinger comes out with a club to take control and then rumbling comes from the iceberg and there's a light show and everything like that and as we go back to the iceberg it ruptures and the mummified creature hatches out of it as we end the broadcast. We end it with this cartoony sort of brawl for all in the middle of the ring which is just face palm central really and then we end the broadcast completely with the bed sheet ripping and the mummified creature now known as the Yeti being debuted on Nitro. Did you hate this as much as I hated it? Probably more so. It's it was just kind of like here's the Yeti, cut to black. There's no moment to really sort that in, you know. If that's what, if, if you want to put this character over, there's no moment to sort that in. He's just breaking out of ice, uh, breaking out of fucking bed sheets and bit of whatever that was, that penis-shaped plastic at the front that would lit up pink. It was oh, everything about it was just so bad, you know. The ma- the match wasn't great. Uh, Luger selling was. Luger. Let, let, let's just leave it at that. The less said about the match, the better. Uh, but the whole everything around it, making the giant look like a dominant force, it goes against everything that you've done before if you're just going to have Hulk Hogan. Hulk up here. Leave that for the fucking pay-per-view. Don't have it here. Come on. You've just undone a little bit. You know. Now I, now I genuinely believe going into Halloween Havoc, which, for the lack of my better judgment, I am going to watch at some point over this weekend. Leave that shit for the pay-per-view, please. If you want to get this character over, leave it to the pay-per-view. And let's look at it as well. The Yeti. <laughs> the Yeti's a fucking abominable snowman. Not a fucking mummy! So, Brian, what did you think of Nitro number eight? Not good. Uh, barring the tag match, everything around it was not good at all. I say the tag match, the cruiserweight tag match. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Everything else around it, not good. I mean, very very folks to Savage giving Kurosawa everything in that match uh, just wasn't particularly entertaining. Uh, rundown, uh, anything Dungeon of Doom, I've made my feelings known about it at this point. Uh, fucking terrible shit, I've had enough of it. Fuck off, please. Just go away, leave me alone, had enough. Um, yeah, uh, two and a half stars this show, and I'm being generous. Uh, the tag match is responsible for for at least one of those stories yeah i think i'd agree with that this isn't this isn't the strongest natural you're ever going to see in fact storyline wise it falls for a zero yeah it doesn't plug anything else by the fucking i noticed that this this supposed to be the go home show for halloween Havoc, yeah and the sole focus is on the dungeon of doom it's like you've got so many moving parts that are actually could have been well promoted and okay I'm not saying give them screen time, but the things you could have done, you could have done at least a video package, a backstage promo with fucking Ric Flair and uh, and Sting cutting a promo on Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman, or the other way around. No, you just get Brian Pillman attacking Eddie Guerrero, which is grand, isolated on its own, but it doesn't build that match. You know, nothing else has been built in this show for Halloween Havoc by the fucking Dungeon of Doom shit. And that is so fucking frustrating. Yeah. It'd be better when they go two hours. I think they'll have more time to promote. But like I say, you could have had the video packages. You could have cut to, uh, you know, this is what happened last week. You know, just show what happened last week. Just to keep it in the uh, in the frame of mind. To be honest with you, before fucking Brian Pillman came out, I completely forgot about the Ric Flair stuff because there's no mention of it. The commentators don't bring it up. You know, it's like this is so fucking frustrating. So amateur. 
so amateur. And, you know, I, I, this show's an anomaly considering because I've had some quite good shows recently uh, where they've built it really well. But as far as a go-home show is, you need to push everything. You need to push everything. And they just haven't done... What other matches are at Halloween Havoc? Bar the tag match. Bar... Uh, fucking machine versus machine monster versus monster fucking wankfest versus wankfest whatever they fucking want to call it what else is on that show i don't know i'm i'm supposed i'm, I'm guessing the cruiserweights are going to be there promote that shit that's the shit that the fans are interested in me anyway you know you as well you know promote that what else is on that show uh the only other thing that i could think of was um would be johnny be bad versus diamond dallas page oh and that as well yeah okay I didn't even know that. That's a presumption. Uh, I, I don't think it was ever announced on Nitro, as you said then. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. You know, fill in the blanks, connect the dots, let me know what's on the show. If if this was 1995, I'm not paying fucking whatever it is to pay, uh, to buy that pay-per-view because I'm just feeling like I'm not... I haven't got a lot to look forward to. I'll just catch the highlights. You know, you've got to sell your pay-per-views. It's your main... It's your main selling point. You've got to sell them. And they just haven't done it badly. And I know they're still getting to grasp with with, with the whole live element and, and all that. Totally understood. But it's not like you haven't had TV. It's not like you haven't had pay-per-views to promote before that. You've had several years of doing that now. This should be something you have nailed down. This is something that you should be doing without fail. They did well with Fallbro. This it just feels like, yep, yeah, this is happening. Oh, it's so frustrating, so frustrating. Maybe on another day, if there weren't, if there were less of this fucking dungeon of doom shite, I'd probably be a little less hot about it. I'd probably be a little bit more kinder. But fuck it, I'm in a mood now. I hate this shit. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying Nitro for the most part. I'm hating the dungeon of doom shit and the fact you haven't promoted the the pay per view as well as you could have. It's like, oh uh, no. You know, why, I'm not looking forward to watching Halloween Havoc. I really am not. In terms of what you've just said about cruiserweights, there there is no cruiserweight bout here, uh, looking at the card. There is two matches that will trigger in your head as well, which is um, Randy Savage has to defeat the Zodiac, and Lex Luger has to defeat Meng, and if they defeat their respective opponents, then it's Randy Savage versus Lex Luger, which was made not the last Nitro or the Nitro before. No, it was like two weeks ago and I completely forgot about that. Again, not in the fans' conscience because you're not promoting it. Mm. And that is around the Dungeon of Doom as well. There's more fucking moving parts of the Dungeon of Doom than fucking Hulk Hogan and the Giant. Yeah, it's frustrating that the pay-per-view is essentially ha- hanging on, you know, the Giant versus Hulk Hogan. Very, very so. So onto the ratings for this one. We get a 2.6 for Nitro and we get a 2.2 for Raw. So it's, it's Raw reversal this week even though I would say... The Nitro show was the strongest one last week, and the Raw show, as I'm going to, about to give you the results, I would say that the Raw show is the strongest one this week. The Raw result here is that Owen Hart, who is accompanied to the ring by Jim Cornette, defeats... Long breath. Aldo Montoya, Bam Bam Bigelow, Barry Horowitz, Bob Holly, Duke Drose, Fatu, Hakushi... Henry O. Godwin, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Isaac Yankum, DDS, Jean-Pierre Lafayette, Kama, King Kong Bundy, Marty Gennetti, Rad Radford, Savio Vega, Sid, Skip and the 123 Kid in a WWF Intercontinental Title Battle Royal number one contendership match that lasted 20 minutes. And with some of the uh, 
names in that. I mean, I love a good Royal Rumble, and you usually get these fringe names in those matches, and it, and it does make for entertainment. So there is that perception I, I have for that. To be honest with you, I want to go and watch that now, because that sounds really fucking interesting. Yeah, the, the, I mean, them kind of matches, they don't really sit well with me. There's too much going on. Yeah, it's like Royal Rumbles generally are good matches, because you have... Uh, again, moving parts, people are coming in, people are going out, you know, and it's just a fun little contest that's different from everything else. Battle Royals aren't really the best, but when they're done well, they're done really well. They do work, and yeah, I, I think there's enough names in there to make that match pretty, pretty interesting. And for the Intercont- Intercontinental title as well, what we were saying a couple of weeks ago about the Intercontinental title being more uh, more prestigious in the 90s, more, more important doesn't that make it sound fucking important to you? Because it does to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's for the number one contendership of the WWF Intercontinental title, but I, I do see your point. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're, they're doing... It's a spectacle. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a spectacle, and it's, you know, good promoting. Um, alongside that is uh, Avatar defeating Brian Walsh, and uh, in the main event, which this surprised me when I saw it, Alundra Blaze defeated Bertha Faye, who came to the ring with Harvey Whippleman, uh, and Bertha Faye was the champion. Alundra Blaze won the WWF Women's Championship. I have a funny feeling inside my waters that the night that this happened is the same reign where someone might do something on a future episode of Nitro. I could mm. be wrong. That was the main event. That was the main event. So, so much for WWE pushing, oh, we two and Trish were in the first women's main event. No, they fucking weren't then, were they? Uh, no. <laughs> no, and that's nothing against Trish and Lita because I love them, but come on, you know, revisionist history much? I was trying to make a joke about, in my head, while you were talking earlier, I was trying to make a joke about um, the bed sheet that was the iceberg and the Iron Anderson theme being a major aphrodisiac, but. It never, it never amalgamated itself together, so never mind. Yeah, so this morning when I were in the shower, it was kind of like, that just came out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, it tickled me, and I hope it tickled everybody else at home. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, fourth episode of the Nitrogen Podcast. As always, you can find us on all the social media channels. On uh, Reddit, Instagram, and Twitter, you just at Nitrogencast, and you can always give us a like on Facebook. Any feedback... Any suggestions, any comments, any arguments, any improvements, anything that you'd like to discuss with us uh, during this lockdown period, as discussed last time, it doesn't matter if it's about wrestling or it's not about wrestling. We are here to entertain you, but also to have a conversation with you. And if you need it, we're here. Just keep your dungeon of doing shit to yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) For Das Act Kid, Brian Bradshaw, and for me, Marvellous Mark Ashworth, uh, it's sayonara. Until next time on the Nitro Gem Podcast. See you later.